Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. Uh, you're going to need your Bibles this morning as the uh, passage uh, for this morning is not printed in your bulletin. It's not in your insert. And it uh, gives me an opportunity to say to you that there are Bibles on the back table that we invite you to use if you don't have a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, certainly take that. That's our gift to you. The reason the passage doesn't fit this morning is because it's long. And uh, it's a bit daunting, uh, but bear with me. I uh, wrestled. Uh, this was not an easy passage to think about how to preach. And it's one that I debated whether I should even read. Uh, but I always want to be modeling and having us think about the fact that uh, we submit ourselves to God's Word. And I submit myself to God's Word. And so I don't want to talk about God's Word without God's Word speaking first and letting it be heard. And so that's why I'm going to read all 53 verses of Acts chapter 7. We've been studying, for those of you who are visiting, we've been studying this book of Acts, and it's one of the, uh, one of the joys of studying a book, and it's also one of the challenges is that I know what I'm, I know what I'm preaching, I just look at the next passage that I come to and and I can't really skip it. Uh, I don't need to skip it. It's God's Word. But certainly you would call me out on that if I did. And so we've been studying this book of Acts just chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, this great first century history of the followers of Jesus Christ. But it, it's not just a history book. I remind you of that this morning. It's not just something that we would pull off of our shelves at the library but no, we believe this morning that this is God's Word, that this is not just an accurate reporting of the origins of Christianity, but this is truth from God. It's given by Him. It's passed down from generation to generation. And it's given to us, made profitable for us, to show us God, to reveal ourselves, and to help us interpret the world around us. And so we've been talking about specifically the man Stephen. Last week we talked about this man and we really just talked about the man himself and the manner in which he spoke. And I don't need to rehash that whole sermon, uh, but uh, it was an encouragement to be reminded that Jesus is standing for us as Stephen stands for him. Well, today we move for a few minutes from the man and the manner to the message that he spoke. And that's what we skipped last week is the message that he spoke. What did this man say that resulted in his death? And what does that have to teach us today? And so listen as I read Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Speaking to Stephen and the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect. 
that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him out in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look at it. And there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise, hit, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. 
Our fathers refused to obey Him, but thrust Him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joseph when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and who you, who, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Are you still with me? It's good that I made you stand up. It woke you up uh, after that long passage. Have you ever asked a question to someone and you're looking for a yes or no reply, but instead you, getting, you get something entirely different? I do this sometimes when people ask me question, or I ask somebody a question and then it begins, rather than answering the question, they start with the word so. And I go, oh, here we go. So... My wife often accuses me of doing the same thing, of making a long story much longer than it needs to be. Just answer the question. In one sense, we kind of want to say that to Stephen, right? He was asked a simple question. Are these things so? And his answer to that simple question was the 53 verses. Could have been more than those 53 verses. We actually don't know if that was just a segment of what he said or whether that was the entirety of what he said. If you're familiar with the Bible this morning and you heard those verses, you know that you heard a partial summary of the Old Testament. You heard Stephen basically walking through the life of three of the most important figures in Jewish history. Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. As I come to a passage like this as a preacher, you can do a lot of stuff with this. We could just preach the whole Old Testament in verse, in chapter 7. In fact, I looked at Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a Welsh preacher from the last century, a great preacher 
tends to be a bit verbose, tends to be a bit wordy at times. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 36 sermons on chapter 7. 36 sermons. Well, I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to cover the message in one sermon this morning. Now, as we think about this speech that Stephen gives, it's tempting to think that, me, that, uh, that Stephen is possibly meandering. That he's, he's, it's, a, it's a stall tactic. He knows maybe what's coming and he just wants to, to talk. Maybe he's avoiding the questions posed to him. The question in verse 1, are these things so? And what were those things that he needed to answer to? Well, remember last week, for those of you who are here, he was accused of two things, blasphemy against the holy place or against the temple of God and disrespect of Moses and the law of Moses. Those two things. Now, why are those two things significant? They're significant because those are the two things that are most sacred to Jews in that day. So he has apparently slandered the most sacred things to Jews. And we kind of hinted at last week as we talked about his message, because we got that much from our text last week, that the reason he's being attacked on these two points is because he is merely echoing the teaching of Jesus on these two things, on the temple and on the law of Moses. And I think as we come to chapter 7, having already looked at the man, having already looked at what happens to him and the bold stand that he takes, that Stephen certainly could have said yes or no to that question, are these things so? But he doesn't do that. And I suspect he doesn't do that because he knows that this will indeed be his last chance to speak the truth. And so believe it or not, in those 50-some verses that we just read, Stephen is not meandering. He is actually addressing what he has been accused of. And specifically, he's going to show these men who are accusing him that they have missed the point. That they're just not getting it. And so I think actually this sermon, this speech, is much as I wrestled with it this week, I think it has something to teach us. Three things, in, spa- in fact, to teach us about God, about us, and about what He has done for us. That is, what God has done for us. And so the first truth I want us to think about this morning is this. God is much bigger than you think. God is much bigger than you think. And I'm not talking about size. I'm not talking about we look in a telescope at a star that looks itsy-bitsy in the sky, and then we look through the telescope, we see how big it is. I'm talking about His glory. I'm talking about His character. I'm talking about His actions. His story is so much bigger than we think. See, for Stephen, this isn't wiggling out of trumped-up charges that have been put against him. This is about conveying the truth of who God is to a people who have revealed that they don't know who He is, that they don't understand Him, that they're confused about Him. You see, Stephen's first point through all of this 
is essentially this. He says, you accuse me of speaking words against this holy place, but guys, I am one of you. I believe in the law. I honor the temple. But there's so much more that you're missing because the God that you say meets you here, you don't understand who He is. Now let's just back up and talk a little bit about the temple. The temple in Jerusalem had long been the centerpiece of Jewish life. We've talked about this before. And it's not just because it was a majestic building and had this great architectural splendor. No, the temple was the place where God promised to meet His people. And what Stephen, in this long history, in this long speech, seeks to show is that they have lost sight of the fact that it's not about this building, but God, the God that you worship, has always been in the midst of His people. He has always met His people. His presence was never confined to a house. This temple was only a season. It's only a pointer of something greater that was coming. And he says as much in verse 48 when he quotes the prophet Isaiah there in your Bibles. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is this place of my rest? See, one of the common threads that I want you to see through this speech that Stephen gives is the fact that God has always been with His people. He's always been in the midst of His people. God is bigger than you think. God is bigger than they thought. As one commentator wrote, the living God is a God on the move and a God on the march. And yet, what was happening in that day, in Stephen's day? Well, the religious rulers, the religious officials wanted to keep God under their thumbs. They wanted one, a God that is, who was confined to a box. One that they could handle. One that they could understand. But what happened? What happened to break this paradigm? What happened is that Jesus came. And that Jesus claimed to be God and He proved He was God by by healing, by rising from the dead. And now they are confronted with a God that's bigger than they ever imagined. But God was in this temple. And now God is outside of the temple. Now God is the temple. God is in our midst. And Stephen stands before them and says, yes. Yes. God has always met His people where they are. You can imagine the religious leaders and the rulers of the day, their reality is crumbling. And yet they're desperately trying to hold on. They miss the point. They miss Jesus. They miss the fact that God is bigger than they thought. He is the God who reveals Himself on His terms, not our terms. And that's scary. That's scary. And yet, that's not scary. It's not scary because He's a God who meets us where we are. He's he's a God who bends down. He's a Father who bends down in order that He can look His children in the eye. Rather than just staying behind a curtain... 
in blinding glory for all his days. You see, I think there is truth for us here this morning in this point that Stephen's trying to make to the religious leaders of that day. I think there is a natural tendency for us to minimize who God is. To put God in a box. We naturally, I think, create a God of our own making. One that we're comfortable with. A tame God. Rather than seeking, rather than acknowledging the God that has revealed Himself in the Bible. So don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying that the Bible is not sufficient. That God is a God who doesn't even fit in the Scriptures. No, the Scriptures are what has revealed God to us. But what I am saying is that we at times, we take the Word of God piecemeal in order to perceive and create a God that we would like. And I think it's always good for us to be reminded that the God that we worship is bigger than you think. His ways are greater than you could imagine. He's a God who's mysterious. He's a God who's majestic. A God whose ways are not like our ways, but whose promises are true. It's that kind of God that Aslan communicates to us. Aslan, the character in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. A classic quote of Mr. Beaver about Aslan. He isn't a tame lion. He isn't safe. But he's good. And he is the king. You see, a God that big, that glorious, that majestic, and yet so loving that He would condescend and look His children in the eye. That He would send His own Son to live and to die and then send His Spirit to dwell in us. That gives us a reason to live and a desire to know Him more. Listen to this quote I found. This author says, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough, objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other man has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? This God is bigger than you think, and yet He's given you His Son that you might know Him. Not that you will plumb the depths of who He is entirely, but indeed what He reveals about Himself is true. It's the first thing that Stephen reminds his hearers of, and God's Word reminds us of this morning, is that God is bigger than we think. But there's more. Because this text also reminds us of who we are, and it's the second truth I want to focus on for just a moment, and it's this. The story of man is a story of rebellion. The story of man is a story of rebellion. Oftentimes there can be great pride in our family history. Sometimes there can be great sadness. 
Sadness because we look in our family past and we see patterns. We see things that we are working out now in our lives. Stephen wanted to throw before these elders, these teachers and leaders of the day, their history. Israel's history. A history that is littered with rebellion and rejection. Here Stephen stands being accused of disrespecting Moses and the law given to Moses. And he makes the point, you guys have already discarded Moses. Verse 27, Who made you a ruler over us? The Israelites say to a young Moses. Verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts turn to Egypt. And then verses 51 and 53, As your fathers did, so do you. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And it's those words, of course, that send these men over the edge. As we talked about last week, their hearts literally explode with anger and they send him to his death. But, Stephen's point is still valid. Just as they misunderstood the temple and tried to keep God in that box, not acknowledging that God is bigger than they think and that His ways are not our ways, so they misunderstood the point of the law and the deliverers that God sent. The story of Israel is this cycle. Many of you know this. It's this cycle of a people discontent with what God has revealed to them, then enduring the consequences of that discontentment and that rebellion until God, a mysterious, a mysterious, mysteriously merciful and gracious God, intervenes and sends them a deliverer to rescue them from their muck. But eventually that deliverer, even after the rescue, will be cast aside. And that's Stephen's point. Is that you cast aside every deliverer that God sends you. You are missing the point. And so he accuses them of being stiff-necked and stubborn. That's not a phrase we use often. A stiff-necked people. It has to do with the agriculture of that day. And when you put a yoke, when you put a, uh, this big leather uh, contraption on the, on the head of a horse or an ox in order to help him plow your field, often the horse or the ox would stiffen his neck and make it difficult for you to put that on. Understandably so. And he says, you are stiff-necked. Because you're rejecting the very deliverers that God is sending your way. And I think that question that's posed to God's people by Stephen back in that day is a question that comes to us this morning. Are we a stiff-necked and stubborn people? We're in a different time, we're in a different place, but the issue is the same. The God of the universe, the God who created you, has revealed Himself to you. 
He has spoken into the brokenness of our world. He has sent rescue to you. To you who have a tendency to make yourselves gods. And to live according to your own devices. But He sends you rescue through the person of Jesus, through the righteous one. Jesus isn't even mentioned in Stephen's speech until the very end when He says, the righteous one. And Jesus said the same thing to them that He says to you this morning. All you who are weary, you're weary of your brokenness, you're weary of your rebellion, you're weary of an aimless life. Come to me, and I will give you rest. But you have to let me put that yoke on you. But my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The story of man is a story of rejection and rebellion. And that brings us to the crux of the matter. The one big take home that I want us to have from this speech that Stephen gives, and it's this. And we'll end here. The good news is not about what you can do. It's about what God has done. The good news is not about what you can do. It's about what God has done. Here's where we need to be every Lord's Day. Here's where we need to be every day. One thing I don't want you to miss. I know this is a long story. This is a long speech. But one thing I don't want you to miss is the story of God's divine initiation throughout this History that Stephen gives. This is God's story. This is His work. Stephen even begins there. The God of glory appeared, he says, at the very beginning of his speech. The answer to your rebellion, your natural rebellion and running from God, the answer to your inaccurate view of God is not to try harder. This is not good advice this morning. This is good news. And yet, so often where our hearts want to go is to what we can do or to what we have done. But look, even in our passage, verse 41, even in this narrative that Stephen gives, he writes in verse 41 that in their rebellion, in the people of God's rebellion, they made a calf. Remember the story Moses was on the mountain They made a calf. And what does it say at the very end of that verse? They rejoiced in the work of their hands. See, it was about them. It was about what they could do. What they could create. But the Gospel of Jesus calls us to acknowledge what we can't do but what God has done. And it's almost as if Stephen wants to make this comparison because in verse 50, he quotes the prophet who quotes the Lord saying, did not my hand make all these things? So we got the work of our hands and we got the work of God's 
hands. And if we were to go back to Isaiah 66, in the original passage, the prophet writes, All these things my hands have made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so the point of Stephen's speech was not just, you can't fit God in this house. You've misunderstood His story. You reject His deliverers in the midst of your rebellion. But His message is also, you can't clean yourself up enough. You can't stay clean enough. You can't do enough good things. But you can rest in what He has done. Brothers and sisters, it's that kind of news that's good. It's that kind of news that can really grip a heart. It's that kind of news that can make a man stand and say such words to the religious authorities of his day, knowing very well what was coming. Too easily we make God smaller than He is. We make ourselves bigger than we are. And in doing so, we miss the magnitude of grace. And we miss the good news of what God has done. A good news that, yes, seems too good to be true. And yet it's true. It's the message that your souls rest in this morning. It's the message that we as a church have the privilege of holding out to a world that needs to know this God. That needs to know themselves. That needs to lay it all down. It's a great passage. A great message for the church this morning. May God give us grace to heed it. Let's pray. Great and mighty God, we thank You for Stephen. A man emboldened by such news of grace that he was willing to stand to the death because of what he knew to be true. But even more than that man, we thank You for the Spirit that empowered that man, for the Savior who stood for that man, who empowered that man to speak boldly. And Father, we sit here this morning as those, most of us, many of us, but maybe not all of us, sit as those who claim to know You, who claim to follow You. Oh Father, as this Word comes to us, may Your Spirit show us those areas where we have made You into our own image. Ways where we have been blind to our own sin and rebellion. Ways that we have tried to earn Your favor favor rather than resting in Your grace. Father, show us that that we may be made holy and that we, by the power of Your Spirit, by the grace of the Lord Jesus, may too be emboldened to speak life, to speak truth to a world around us. Oh Father, this we pray 
In the name of the risen Jesus, the one who sits at your right hand interceding for us even now. In his name we pray. Amen.